This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you in this new year to the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us on this Tuesday. And if you happen to be a first-time listener and you have questions, you can call us locally at 843-525-1859. It's 843-South Carolina Exchange, 525-1859. We have a toll-free number as well, and that number is 877. The call letters WAGP. 980. If you do call, you can go on the air live, and we do give preference to live callers. A lot of people are a little bit hesitant to do that sometimes, and we're happy to have you just dictate your question. Or if you want, you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And generally, we take questions as you've been studying Scripture. Maybe there's an issue that you're not certain as to what it means or its application, or you're looking for biblical counsel on an area of life or ministry or family, and if we can be of help by God's grace, we'll do the best that we can. So, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll begin this morning. All right, Pastor, we have many, many emails that have come in over the holidays, so let's start with Molly, who lives in Beaufort, South Carolina. She says, one thing I've been hearing so much from my Christian and non-Christian friends is that we need to separate church from state, and it's even what the Bible says. When I ask them to show me where it says that, they most often point to Matthew 22, verses 17 to 21. I was just wondering, what does the Bible say about church and state? Should there be a separation as they believe, and are they interpreting what Jesus was saying correctly? Well, these are these are good questions. Uh, the case uh, that you mention needs to be put in the broader context of the whole of Scripture, but the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him. And so that's the introduction to this section of Scripture. And they sent their disciples to him. Disciple means learner. It's not always used of Christ's disciples. Sometimes it's used of John the Baptist's disciples. In this case, the disciples are the learners of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. And tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus, of course, perceiving their malice, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin. And then, of course, that famous statement Render to Caesars the things that are Caesars, and to God the things that are God's. And, of course, he has Peter pay the tax. If you remember on that occasion when he said, look, go take your pole, Peter, throw it in the Sea of Galilee, your line, and the first fish you pull up will have a stator in its mouth, and you can pay your tax of mine. So Christ was not opposed to paying taxes. And, of course, the Roman government was no stellar, you know, a government that represented righteous ideals, and yet he said to pay the tax. Why? Because there's a need for government. No matter how fallen it may be, the fact is is that government still has a function to 
potentially put away evil and to uh, lift up righteousness. And so that's what it should do. But what is uh, the broader question is, what is our relationship to government? There are really three things I always emphasize to people. One is we're to submit to government. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then he says, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it, government, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So you have here in the New Testament, of course, an affirmation of what we call capital punishment. And that authority is not given to the individual. That authority is given uh, to the government. Uh, Therefore, he said, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Peter, interestingly, gives a very similar admonition of our need to be submissive to the governing authorities. And so I'm turning very quickly here to 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So again, there is this admonition to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And it's not um, an admonition given just to the lost, but to the saved. So he says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So, there is an aspect of honor that we are to show to government because, again, the governing authorities are established by God. The exception, of course, in Scripture is uh, on those occasions when the government or some authority over us asks us to do something that is contrary to God's will. And so on one occasion, it was the religious authorities, not the governmental authorities, that asked Peter and James and John to no longer preach, and they said, look, um, we must obey God rather than men. So if the uh, command of government is not unreasonable and it's not in violation of God's clear dictated will as found in Scripture, then our command is to submit. So one, we are to submit to the government. Secondly, we are to pray for the government. And by the way, I have sermons on all of these, probably should do one on all three all of these concepts brought together. But I'm now turning to 1 Timothy. And in chapter 2, he says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're to pray for all who are in authority, that for kings or whoever they might be, um, in our case, the president, the Congress, our local authorities, we are to pray for them. And, you know, sometimes we spend more time whining and complaining about what we don't like about the government than we do praying for them. And many times, of course, sadly, 
uh, God gives a nation what they deserve. So we submit to government, we pray for government, and we are to be a witness to government. Uh, We are to be salt and light. We are to be salting a nation with righteousness. We are to speak up when a government is wrong. And I don't care who's in office, Republican, Independent, Democrat, if they are going against the clear dictates of Scripture, then it's our responsibility to speak up. Uh, Sometimes we can speak up through a vote today in Georgia for all of our Georgia listeners. I certainly hope that you're not sitting on your hands. If you have the legal right to vote, you should vote because there are two worldviews that are in direct uh, opposition to one another. And on this particular occasion, it's rather unusual, I think, in the history of our republic for one election to be so crucial as this one is in the state of Georgia, because obviously if we lose these two Senate seats, then there's going to be, I think, probably the final nail in the coffin. I don't know at this point that we can stop the parade of evil that is like a tsunami that's coming across our nation. We know there's coming a time in human history because Christ tells us, and the prophets do as well, where hell will have a holiday and evil will progress like never before. Only God knows if we've reached that point, but when you look at all the pieces of prophecy brought together, it appears we are now at that point. Now, whether God chooses to stay the evil a little bit longer, but if uh, these two Democrats who are evil, 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 evil people with an evil, evil, evil platform are elected, then things are going to radically change like we've never seen in the history of America. But we need to speak up sometimes through votes, sometimes through voice. You know, I mean, Moses spoke to Pharaoh over moral issues. Nathan confronted King David. Elijah, we just did a study on him. He confronted King Ahab. Eleazar, the prophet Eleazar. There's a bunch of folks by the name Eleazar, but on one occasion he confronted Jehoshaphat. Daniel, of course, which uh, we was two books ago that we did, uh, he confronted King Nebuchadnezzar. John the Baptist uh, confronted Herod Antipas. And so we are to speak up. You know, sadly, churches are either complacent, they're complicit, or they're courageous. And there's a lot of complacent churches today, like the church in Laodicea. They're just lukewarm. They don't really care. They're only interested in their personal peace and prosperity. And beyond that, beyond the complacent churches, you have churches like Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, and we studied those in our series on the Revelation, and they're more complicit in their approach. They, uh, they just don't care. They allow evil to advance. They endorse evil. And so, you know, we had this um, so-called representative uh, pray a few days ago in the Congress on Sunday, and you know, he said, amen, a woman. He's a United Methodist minister, an apostate minister, a sheer unbeliever, not even knowing the meaning of amen. And they're bringing in gender issues and all kinds of things that are just wicked and evil and depraved. And and uh, if the Biden administration has its way, we are going to see a, a moral downgrade like we've never seen before. And so beyond being complacent or complicit, um, we are to be courageous. We are to stand up for what is right because righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. So we, we pray, we um, submit, and we witness. Those are our three key responsibilities to government. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I'd say if there's ever been any question that has been on the minds of our listeners, it's uh, this one is probably at the top of the list. I don't think we've ever had as many calls about this, and I just hung up from a woman. She is in the same camp. So let me read uh, two of these, and then uh, the third, I'll let you know what she said. Uh, Matthew from Beaufort writes, I'd like to thank you for your program and answering our Father's call and feeding his people. Uh, Grace called me to accept Jesus when I was 12. I'm 54 now, and sadly have seen that often people who may be willing to die for Jesus find it much harder to live for Jesus. Lately, I've spent many years moving and relocating due to the often short-term contracts as I work as an engineer, and so I found tuning into your program a godsend. My question concerns the vaccines that are being released for COVID-19. I recently listened to an interview with someone in the medical community and that as part of the process for engineering the vaccines that stem cells and most notably those harvested from abortion or otherwise related fetuses are used in the development of the vaccines. Have you heard of this? And is this indeed the case? What would be your guidance for Christians in taking the vaccine? Sandy from Beaufort writes, I've read a lot about the COVID vaccine. I see that two of them have some aborted parts. How is a Christian able to support this? And a woman with I just uh, was on the phone with a minute ago would like to know about the vaccine and in particular about the effect on unborn children. Well, these are great questions and they're fair questions and we need to ask them and do our best to try to respond uh, there's a lot of misinformation, obviously, out there on the Internet. Everything from they are injecting a microchip into your body. Some have said that these vaccines are the mark of the beast. Some have said that uh, we are becoming antennas for the 5G network. I mean, on and on it goes that it's designed to sterilize women. And uh, there's there's no end to the number of conspiracies. Uh, with that said... Uh, there is some truth to what you said, and there's a popular podcast that uh, is is done by Desiring God, and um, it's uh, founder John Piper back in October when they were beginning this whole process of, you know, creating a vaccine. He released a podcast, you know, arguing that uh, some of the vaccines were being made from aborted tissue cells. And obviously, that would be a huge problem for a pro-life Christian to have a vaccine that's made from aborted tissue cells. Um, with that said, the two vaccines that have been officially released right now in the United States from Pfizer and Moderna have no such um, issues in them. So there's no ethical dilemma in taking either of those vaccines. There's a number of vaccines that are still uh, underway. Uh, whether they'll be approved in the United States or not remains to be seen, and some that are being done in other countries that would not meet the high ethical standards that we as Christians, you know, are going to ascribe to as pro-life people. Uh, with that said, right now, if you get the Pfizer Moderna vaccine, there's not a problem and you're not dealing with that issue. And I think, you know, obviously a thinking Christian believer would want to look at each one, uh, whether it can make you sterile. Um, you know, there seems to be no indication that that is the case. Some would say it's too early to uh, discern that, but listening to the leading virologist in all of Israel, who's a pandemic specialist and considered one of the top men in the world, he said it's not an issue. 
Um, certainly, you have to weigh the risks of taking a vaccine with the benefits. If I am offered the opportunity to take the vaccine, I'll, I'll take it in a heartbeat. Uh, now, listen, you're speaking to someone who's never even had the flu a virus vaccine shot. I've never gotten a flu shot ever. It's not that I'm opposed to it. I just have never had one because I very rarely, by God's grace, ever get sick. Sometimes I get a little bit of a cough when I'm overtired and it seems to linger. Um, part of that might be just living in the low country because when I leave the low country, the cough always is gone. Uh, but with that said, uh, I, I would take this because there are other ramifications to this virus. Um, there are permanent disabilities that some Americans, young and old, are experiencing. Some are getting, you know, what they call mind fog, where the sharpness and the crispness in their ability to think is um, being, you know, removed to some extent. Others, we just had a gentleman that we know, Rick and I know, and uh, they have gotten COVID and no lung problems, no issues there, but they've got neurological problems in their legs and, uh, they, they, they can't walk right now or greatly limited, I should say. So there's, you know, a lot of side effects to the virus that you don't quote unquote die from it. Uh, I think one of the challenges is that we now live in an age where, uh, people have been so far removed from some of the diseases that Americans knew in the 20th century that they think, oh, we don't even need these vaccines. And so, you know, polio and tuberculosis and, you know, all kinds of um, diseases that Americans experienced and were still experiencing when I was a young boy. Uh, One of the um, churches that I was involved in for two years in trying to establish, there was a woman in that church who lived in rural Georgia And uh, she did not get the benefit of the polio vaccine. And she's my age and she has polio. And she's lived with that her entire life. And so these diseases have been removed. Uh, So when you weigh the pros and the cons, to me, I'm going to take it too because I feel called of God to travel internationally. And it appears, though it's not official yet, it appears you'll not be able to travel internationally without having evidence that you've been vaccinated. And, you know, I understand the rationale behind that and country's rationale for it. But obviously, if there's a vaccine uh, that is using aborted uh, tissue, uh, uh, tissue from an aborted baby, then obviously I would not take that kind of vaccine. But the two that are available right now in America, neither of them have any ethical problems. Now, nobody knows the long-term effect of a vaccine any more than they know the long-term effect of a flu virus. But again, listening to one of the leading uh, virologists in in the world who's, you know, out of Tel Aviv, um, you know, he said this vaccine is not all that much dramatically different in makeup from the other previous COVID vaccines that have been developed. Rick, do you want to add anything to this? Because I know you've done some study on this Well, the only thing I was going to add was there was concern about the uh, possibility that the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines might be modifying people's RNA and Mm. DNA. And that was something that was going around on the Internet as well. There is absolutely no truth to that. In actuality, what uh, the Moderna and uh, Pfizer vaccines do is they – 
simulate a protein in your body that uh, is in line with the COVID, uh, COVID virus, and then uh, it instructs your immune system to attack it so that when you are actually infected, uh, immediately that, that goes, to, uh, goes into, into action. So mm. um, that's the only concern that I have. The only other thing I was going to say is that um, because of the uh, pandemic nature of this, and it is just so virulent and it can have such uh, drastic impact on people long-term, as you mentioned, the long-term lung issues, I think there's a matter of Christian love at work and grace that we need to express um, by taking this vaccine so that we aren't creating problems for others. I agree, you know, and it's much like the mass policy. And, you know, I got another question that came in through email that Pastor Larry forwarded to me two days ago, and they wanted to know they're moving here, what our policy is on mass. And, you know, I, I basically said, well, you know, churches come in different planes. Some aren't meeting at all, and they're just doing, you know, virtual online assemblies. Some are not allowed to meet in some states. Uh, in some situations, uh, we're, in most states, we're allowed to meet because it is a First Amendment right. Uh, churches have come down either on no mask, no seat, or a more modified, or no mask at all, just do what you want. And those churches that have done that have seen consequences. And uh, right now, you know, uh, a leading Bible teacher on this radio station that seemed to have a somewhat loose approach to actually asking people to wear a mask, Los Angeles is in deep trouble right now. I mean, they are, they have zero bed capacity in their hospitals. They're setting up tents. Um, places like New Mexico, a couple of days ago, they ran out of oxygen. Uh, you've got uh, medical staff, doctors and nurses that are just screaming and pleading and crying, you know, hey, listen, please try to exercise caution because so many of them are now getting sick uh, before they are able to be vaccinated that they are running in short supply in some places to provide adequate care. Uh, so, you know, Paul said the goal of our instruction is love. And so there are several things that we need to consider. Somebody might be young and in their 30s and say, well, I'm not going to get it. Or if I do, you know, my friend got it and he got it and he was asymptomatic. Or, you know, I felt sick for a few days and I was fine. Well, that may be true. But you may not be like the gentleman in our church who I believe is 70, and he went to the doctor's office and, and contracted it there, and now he can't walk, and they're moving him to a nursing home facility. No lung issues, but he's got neurological issues that have come. And so, again, if the goal of our instruction is love, we're thinking about people who might have a different effect. And obviously there are people in their 30s and 40s who are having drastic side effects as well, and some who have died. Look, children, though it's rare, they have died as well. And so I think you need to listen to the leadership of your local assembly. You know, it's possible that God sees a church that says no seat, no mask, and someone says, well, that's rather tyrannical and anti-American, and, but God sees in that church a child who's going to be protected, who would otherwise die, and God is leading that group of elders, deacons, whatever their church polity is as such, to exercise that policy because of that one child. Hey, look, if it was your five-year-old and you knew that 
could be prevented, you'd say, I'll do whatever I need to do. So again, the goal of our instruction is love. Look, I have young couples who've come up to me in their 20s and 30s thanking me between services that we have a policy, otherwise they would not come. And one couple in particular who I know were not born-again believers, I would have ostracized that opportunity for those people to come. Not to mention I would eliminate certain older adults. And look, if some folks have really sensitive immune systems and underlying problems, they probably should not come at all and they should live stream. But again, the goal of our instructional is love. So it's not about me. It's about others, reaching others with the gospel and also ministering to others who might not otherwise come. Do I like wearing those masks? I can't stand them. Uh, But I will do it in order as a matter of testimony so I don't become a stumbling block either to reaching people with the gospel. So these are all important factors to consider. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have Alberto from Savannah on line one. Good morning. What is your question today? Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Brogan and Rick Porchner. My question is, uh, I, I listened to your sermon in Genesis chapter 6. Now, my question is, does, you said that the angels have the ability to become you know, humans like men, but what proof can, in Scripture could you prove me that they, they, they have the ability to create blood in their system and also to have the ability to have a sex organ of as a male? Because God became incarnated and became a man, but the angels did not come incarnated. So, so you know, they have to, the men were commanded to procreate on the earth, not angels. So what proof to Scripture could you prove to me that the angels that have sex with the daughters of men have sex organs as men and also have the genetic, uh, you know, the genes to produce uh, babies? Well, it's a fair question. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair question. So let me see if I can respond. Uh, Obviously, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. In every single instance, without exception, when angels appear in human form, they always appear as males. There's no exceptions to that. So one, when they appear as humans, when they are manifested in that fashion, they appear as males. Now, angels can also manifest themselves in an angelic fashion, as they did, obviously, in the night in which uh, the Lord Jesus was born. And, uh, you know, it brought incredible fear. They didn't appear as humans. They appeared as angels. But, of course, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So, in other words, he is reminding us that sometimes when we express hospitality or kindness to a person, it might very possibly be that the one you are showing hospitality to is not a human but an angel. What does that tell you? It tells you that they look so human that you can't tell the difference. Not to mention when you look at the account in Genesis 19 where the men of Sodom wanted to have a relationship with these angelic beings, they recognized that it was a possibility. These were males. Male, they manifested themselves as males, these angels, and these sodomites recognize the possibility to have a physical relationship with these angelic beings, not to mention Lot recognized that and foolishly offered his two daughters in their stead. Add to that, uh, we read here in Jude, in angels who do not keep their own domain, 
but abandon their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as or just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, these angels who do not keep their proper abode, since they in gross since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So whatever they did in terms of immorality in Sodom, these angels did in God because he said they did not keep their proper abode. In other words, they crossed the line such that they are in eternal chains. There are various categories of demons in the world. There are some who have freedom to wage war against believers. Paul speaks of that in Ephesians 6. We wage war not just simply against people, flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work in the heavenly realms. In addition, uh, there is a class of angels. And by the way, a good illustration of that would be to read Daniel chapter 10, uh, because you have an illustration of angels warring in this world in which we live. And there is a structure and there is an organizational strategy And so God uses terms appropriately of an organized realm of angels, not just on the positive side, elect holy angels, but fallen angels. Uh, In addition, you have some angels who are in the abyss. And so if you remember on that occasion when Jesus goes to Gadara and he deals with the two garrison demoniacs, uh, the the, uh, head demon who is speaking representatively on behalf of a um, of a, some, a legion of angels uh, pled that they might be cast into the swine. Um, and, of course, rather than into the abyss. Why? Because when you're in the abyss, your power is temporarily stifled to be able to wage war in the spiritual realm. But there is coming a day, if, if you've been following the series on the Revelation, when God is going to open the abyss, and those demons will wage war during the time of Jacob's trouble. And then there's this category of angels that are in Tartarus, In 2 Peter 2 also mentions them. So um, when you put Genesis 6 together with uh, Jude in 2 Peter 2, uh, it's clear that these angels left their proper abode just like a man leaves his proper abode when he engages with another man, obviously contrary to God's design. That's evil. God calls it unnatural. He calls it an abomination. But both were guilty of sexual immorality, Jude tells us. Add to that, for the first 1,500 years of church history, there was one view and one view only on how to understand the B'nai Elohim of Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God cohabitated with the daughters of men. This was not, you know, Seth's line, cohabitating with an ungodly line, believers marrying unbelievers. But Elohim is only used in reference to angelic beings in Scripture. And so you have angels cohabitating, and it's a word that is used to refer to in the physical realm. Um, they're cohabitating with the daughters of men. And for 1,500 years of church history, that was the only view. And by the way, in the Talmud, which is basically the rabbinical manual and evaluation, I'm not saying it's always right, but in the Talmud, the Jews understood it this way. The Jews to this day, the Orthodox Jews understand it to this way. The Orthodox do. You, you have obviously other realms of Judaism that 
don't even recognize the authority of Scripture, but there is a category of Jews called Orthodox, like a third of the Jews in Israel are Orthodox, and they represent the authority of Scripture, and they have one, uh, you know, unanimous voice, and that is the expression that I just shared with you, not to mention the Church Fathers and all the way up uh, until the time of the Reformation, there was one view, and that view was uh, and, and, and the view that it was even, even during the time of the Reformation, most Reformers held the view that the Jews held and that the ch- early church fathers held. Um, but it was really not until the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, that some of these other views were being postulated uh, that, this w- that these were not angels cohabitating with the daughters of men. So anyway... Um, it's a good question, fair question. You, we can agree to disagree, um, but I'll tell you the burden of proof would be on you to show otherwise. Uh, let's go to the next question. All right, Bonnie from Bluffton writes, were ancient scrolls written on both sides? Were the original biblical scrolls written on both sides of the parchment? Uh, the question is based on Zechariah 5, 1, 4, which says, then I lifted up my eyes again and looked And behold, there was a flying scroll, and he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going to forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. And then verse 4 says, I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timbers and stones. So it's a good question. Uh, traditionally, typically, scrolls are written on one side. Um, and so the ancient scrolls that we have are never two-sided scrolls. And we have either... Uh, you know, 5,000 ancient completed scrolls and another 15,000 partial scrolls and another 10,000 fragments. And whether it's the Dead Sea Scrolls or early New Testament church scrolls are always written on one side. But this is no ordinary scroll. Obviously, this is a flying scroll. And the size of it is is quite large. The dimensions are given here in verse 2. It says its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits, or you could say about 15 by 30 feet, which, by the way, are the exact dimensions of the holy place in the tabernacle. I don't think that's coincidental. I, 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 I'm, I think that is by design, and that God would show his presence in Israel in the holy place, and they were violating the presence of God by the things that they were doing. And so this is a large scroll. It's written on both sides. It's spread out like a large sheet so that all could read it. And, you know, on one side, there was a blessing, so to speak. On the other side, the, the, the consequences. And by the way, this is not unique to this scroll. Even the Ten Commandments that God wrote in Exodus 32, uh, we read there, and then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. So when God wrote the Ten Commandments, you know, you go to Israel and, you know, they love to sell you wood products and typically you can buy, you know, everything from, you know, the Ark of the Covenant to manger scenes to 
very often it's um, purchased as a copy of the Ten Commandments, and you buy them on wood and all different sizes, and they have the Ten Commandments written on, you know, two tablets on one side. But actually, and I've never actually seen a pair that they sell where it's written on both sides, but that's how God originally wrote them. So on one side um, of this scroll, there was a curse against the Israelites, and they're breaking the Tenth Commandment, I mean the Eighth Commandment. And on the other side, um, where, where he says, you shall not steal, in verse 3 here. And then on the other side, they are breaking the Third Commandment, where a person who, you know, swears falsely, they use the Lord's name in vain. And so God says there is judgment. And on one side, the commandment, and the other side, the consequence for breaking the commandment. So this is no, this is no typical case any more than the specialized scroll that unfolds the seven sealed judgments that you read in the Revelation. This is a unique scroll. And uh, this, uh, I think, is looking down the corridors of time to a judgment that will come extremely fast, that will see its fulfillment uh, in the millennial reign of the Messiah when he turns uh, to rule and reign on the earth. But it's a good question, and it's a thinking question, so I appreciate it. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, David from Hilton Head Island writes, We attend church at Grace Community Church, but I often listen to your sermons on Search the Scriptures as I study the Bible. We're currently studying the book of Daniel, and I have a question relative to chapter 9, verse 25, that I wonder if you would answer. You indicate the period of the 69 sevens, or 483 years, begins upon the issuance of the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem in 445 B.C. and culminates in 32 A.D. with the death of Jesus. I'm sure I'm missing some important piece of knowledge, but the period from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D. seems to be 477 years, not 483 years. Would you please help me to reconcile this information? Well, um, I don't know which sermon you are in Daniel, but I did four sermons, if I remember. The last three dealt with the 70 weeks prophecy, and you have to listen to all three to get the full teaching on it. But even there, you know, you're limited in terms of what you can do in a church setting where if you're sitting across a desk and mapping things out. But let me just share a couple things. And this is an incredible prophecy. It's a mathematical prophecy that brings us to uh, what we call Palm Sunday in 32 AD. And um, the, 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 the question is an issue of calendars because there are different calendars that have been uh, in use over the centuries. And so the Jews use what is typically called a lunar solar calendar. And uh, it's interesting, there's the lunar calendar. We have 12 moons in representing 12 months. And uh, there's the solar calendar where you have, and so you have basically a 28-day month. And then you have the solar calendar, which is actually not 300 and it's 365.2422 uh, days, so to speak, in a year. And that's why every so often we have a leap year. And that's why, you know, between the Gregorian and Julian calendars where they found out, man, we're really getting off here. And they went back and recalculated and they did some major adjustments, you know, seven centuries ago. Uh, it's because of the preciseness of a year. And so the Jews use what's called a lunar solar calendar. 
And so it's a 30-day month. And they're really keying off of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And God made the two great lights. And so God, according to Genesis 1, he makes the sun and the moon to create seasons and days and years. And it's... um. When I teach this, I don't know if you're just listening audibly, but if you watch it with the download and the video, I show a picture of a lunar solar calendar that the Jews use, and it's based on a 360-day year. And so what they would do, and they do it to this day, now they implement you know, NASA and other you know, things that are available to us, but Every so often, they they have what they call leap month, and they add a 13th month, and it's called the month of Aviv. And uh, interestingly, the lunar solar calendar is more accurate than the Gregorian calendar, the Julian calendar, and anything else. So when you take, and, and by the way, you have a biblical basis where you have texts that key off of the 30-day month, and I cover that from Genesis 7 and Genesis 8 in that message. Uh, but when you use the 1260-day, uh, 42-month, 360-day uh, year, it brings you precisely to that particular date of April of 32 AD. Um, obviously, it would be difficult for me to map out here, uh, you know, visually because I'm speaking on the radio, but there's still a classic work. It was written by Elva McLean. Uh, in 1940, and it's called Daniel's Prophecy of the Seventy Weeks, and he does a really superb job of um, mapping out uh, how you come to that calculation. Two, you have to remember there's no year zero, so some people get thrown off there as well. So, But when you put it all together, it brings you precisely mathematically to the day that Christ presents himself, and he says, this your day, this was your day, Israel. This was the day that they spoke of. And by the way, I think, having just come out of Christmas, that the wise men, um, however many there were, had an understanding of this prophecy because they were expecting that this was the time of Messiah's birth. And based on a prophetic passage in Numbers, they recognized that if this is the time, there is also a star associated with it. And so we saw his star and they were looking, you know, for the coming of Messiah because they were prophetically alert to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, 69 of which had been fulfilled. And we are right now between the 69th and the 70th week. But the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, and a week being a week not of days, but a week of years, the final seven years uh, will unfold during the seven year tribulation period. But if you listen to the whole series on Daniel, and if you are patient and listen to the Revelation series, I think you can get it. Um, so hang in there and keep studying. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we had another uh, question that was emailed us from a listener in Savannah. He writes, the Bible says that Christ died for our sins, past, present, and future, and that God will never hold them against us. Why, as believers, will we have to give an account of our lives? I know it's about our service to the Lord and not whether we go to heaven or not. Still, why do we have to give an account of our lives if our sins were taken care of at Calvary by Christ? Well, you've kind of answered your own question. 
it is an issue of service. And so it's not a judgment for sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, though there are certainly present expressions of discipline that God brings on those whom he has that special relationship with, his Proverbs uh, teaches, and as the writer of the Hebrews quotes, uh, but still there's a future evaluation, and it's for our work, for our service. And why does God do it? Because God's just. So if there are two unbelievers and you have a Hitler who slaughtered, you know, millions of Jewish people responsible for the death of millions, and you have some other pagan who maybe never murdered anyone in their life, but still uh, they rejected God's provision in Christ, hell may not be the same. And so hell is awful when it's used in broad descriptive terms. It's awful for anyone who goes there. So we don't want people to think, well, you know, there's this place in hell and you know, the temperature, yeah, it's a little warm. It's like a hot day, you know, 100 degrees. But then there's, you know, places where it's very different. It's awful for anyone who goes there. So when Jesus speaks of hell in broad term, he describes it a place where the worm never dies, where the fire's never quenched. And those are literal, actual terms that he's describing. And that's why there's a need for unbelievers to have a resurrection body just as there's a need for believers to have a resurrection body for a different place called heaven. And so you have uh, two believers. And so again, hell's not the same for everyone. And if you're not sure on that, listen to my sermon on Revelation 20, 11 through 15. I walk through the passages in scripture that teach that. Horrible for anyone who goes, but somehow in the perfect expression of God's justice, it won't be the same. You can take the parallel and apply it to heaven. So you have believer A who's apathetic at times, his heart has grown lukewarm, he serves not passionately, but occasionally, if he serves at all, he has enough evidence to show that he's converted, but not enough evidence to show that he's consistently walking in the fullness of the Spirit. Excuse me, you have another believer who faithfully serves the Lord finds a place of service in the local assembly, uses his spiritual gifts, uh, ties to the local assembly, is engaged in sharing his faith, engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission, will it make a difference in heaven? And in the perfect justice of God, the answer is yes. And how that will work out, we are not fully told. Look, I don't live for rewards. I live because I love Christ. We love him because he first loved us. So it's the love of Christ that compels me to do what I do. But God in his perfect justice will show rewards. We know there are implications during the millennial reign. So Jesus can speak of an individual who's over 10 cities, someone over five, someone over one. And there will be implications throughout all of eternity. So God, in his justice, looks at faithfulness, and he will reward accordingly. And God, too, in his justice, looks at all of the mechanics of what brings a person to Christ so that someone can be uh, hired, so to speak, or converted in the 10th hour of life and at noon or midnight, so to speak, Uh, having only worked two hours where someone else worked eight hours, but he worked faithfully, can receive just as much reward. So it's all a perfect expression of who God is and what he is like. 
843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Anthony from Buford is on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogan. How are you? How are you doing, Dr. Rick, too? I'm going to call you doctor this morning. <laughs> doing well. Uh, doing well, Dr. Anthony. Brogan. Yes, sir. My question, I guess we're going to be back in the book of James this Sunday, right? We will. We will. So I will only answer questions on James on parts that I've preached. So, okay. uh, but for future do, sections, uh, after a, I've preached I hope I ain't getting before you, but I do have a trial question I need to ask you. If you okay. Don't mind. All right. During, during the time of slavery, and... I know God's word is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. Right. During the time of slavery, would you call this, would you call that a trial for black people when they were going through slavery? Or is this uh, something that has to do with disobedience? Or... When it came to when it came to trial, especially when a time came where you couldn't, but if you had to protect your family, even do slavery, was that considered wrong, or is it a trial? It, was that a trial back then? That's what I want to know. Was that a trial? Yeah, it's it's a it's a fair question, and obviously, you know, uh, there are different kinds of slavery in the history of the world. And so it's important, too, that we distinguish between the slavery that took place in early America and the kind of slavery that you read in the first century that the Apostle Paul lived under or even the kind of slavery for debt and different things like that that Israel uh, had. So there's different kinds of slavery and different expressions. But when we're speaking about slavery in our American Republic. It's a sad part of our history. And and let me just say, because people want to rank on America 24-7 of what a wicked nation we are. But let me just say, I don't know of any other nation in the history of the world that has expressed more Christ-likeness and righteousness than America. Not even Israel, because Israel never became, as in a holistic way, recipients of the New Covenant. We did, because we live on this side of Pentecost. And there's coming a day when Israel will outshine us during the time of Jacob's trouble. No question. No doubt about it. But what I'm trying to say is that there is no perfect nation in the world. Uh, There is sin in every nation in the world, just like there's no perfect church. There's no perfect church anywhere. And if you are looking to find one and you finally think you have found one, and you join it, don't join it because you're going to ruin it because we're all sinners, and there's sinners in every nation. But with that said, you look in America, people are still banging on the doors and trying to climb over the walls to get here because it's still an unusual place to live because it had the blessing of God on it, not that God endorsed everything that took place in America because certainly he hasn't. Um, And with that said, you know, obviously slavery was a heinous thing, either white people who owned black slaves or black people who owned slaves because it was on both sides, but largely the former than the latter. But with that said, sadly, it was certainly a trial if you were a slave. But again, God uses sometimes the wrath of man to praise him. 
And I think one remarkable thing that God accomplished out of slavery in America amongst Africans who were transported here to these states is that many came to faith in Christ because of it. And so if you meet someone in heaven who was brought here from Africa and was engaged in pagan religion, because during the 19th century, that was formidable across the African continent. Uh, there was gross darkness there. Uh, and, and they were brought here to America and made slaves, and in the process became believers. And you meet them in heaven, and if you ask them if it was worth it, I don't think they would stutter or stammer for a second. They would say, I was glad I was brought here because I'm spending an eternity with the Lord that God used the hardship, but also the preaching of the gospel that was in America to bring me to genuine faith and conversion. So certainly it was a trial, and it was certainly a trial for many um, white people who opposed slavery in this nation, who were against slavery and hated the thought of it and preached against it. And they were ostracized and looked down upon, and their businesses were boycotted. So it was a trial, but largely on the people who were the slaves. So I'm not trying to minimize that. Please understand. Uh, Was it a judgment? I don't think you can say that, um, that it was definitively a judgment on people. Um, But it was certainly a trial of living in a fallen world. And there are different kinds of suffering that man knows. There's what we call common suffering that happens just because we live in a fallen world. And so Christians and non-Christians alike get COVID. Christians and non-Christians alike get cancer. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. There's Christian suffering, and that's the kind of suffering that comes because uh, we are living for Christ. And so some people under slavery suffered as believers, uh, white people, because they opposed slavery so vehemently, and they suffered because of it. They were persecuted of it. That's another form of suffering. But then there's what we call carnal suffering, and carnal suffering comes at the hand of someone else's sin, and largely almost exclusively the suffering that came in America upon um, black Americans uh, was because of the sin of other people. It was a wicked, heinous sin that was committed against them. And it was a very sad time in our history. Uh, But again, God uses the wrath of man to praise him. And thank God for the uh, vibrant spiritual health of black people in this nation who played a leading role in sharing the gospel to people because of a prior generation that found Christ through the hardship of slavery. We're out of time. Great question. Many more questions we just didn't get to, but Lord willing, we'll be back next week.